That is basically what it looked like to me when I started my ninth grade math class in 1993. I mean, if, if that is not a good representation of what ninth grade algebra looked like uh, to somebody who was at that, that age, I don't know what does. Now, there are probably some of you in the room that maybe at some point along the way you have taught math at, at some level of elementary school or middle school, high school, maybe even university. And, and you may have said something like, my ninth grade algebra teacher said. I, I remember it quite clearly, though I might not quote him exactly. But he said something along the lines of, you'll use algebra constantly for the rest of your life. I would like to say that as of this past July, I have completed an unbroken streak of 35 years of never using algebra. Now, for those of you who actually know about math as opposed to me, uh, you would say, no, 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 you have used more algebra than you can possibly imagine, Philip, every time that you try to cut an angle in a piece of wood, which I will say has been unsuccessful on all first occasions. You know, every time you needed to figure out what was the right way to back up a truck into a space or any number of things, you were using algebra. That's the thing with numbers. Numbers are a funny thing. They are always there lurking in the background. And, and though at times somebody like me will say, you know what, I, algebra, why in algebra, schmalgebra, why in the world did I need that? I just like going to my literature classes. But numbers are something that they are solid. Uh, they, and they reveal a certain amount of truth. And in our own lives, uh, the thing which gets most associated with numbers in our life is obviously our money. If you pull out your wallet, you have all of these credit cards, and you got this cash, and you got coins in your pocket, and you got a checkbook, and you've got Quicken books online, and, and they're all of these things, and they signal something about who we are. Now, the point is not, you know, how can I pull out my spiritual crowbar and pry more money out of your hands. I want you to think about your own money this morning in your own way as we look at the Scripture, because I think how we use money is not just something that it's something that you ought to come and lay out for everybody else. I think you need to take a look at your money because your, how you use money is a signal about your faith but it's also a tool in which God uses to increase our faithfulness. I, I want to talk to you this morning about why generosity matters. It, it's one of the reasons that I wanted Jerry to be here this morning, and, and not that he would have to sit through one of my sermons, although you are very patient to do so, uh, but that you would see a living example as to why generosity matters. Because there are kids and families, there are people in our very community that need preventative work done in their life, that they need intervention in their lives, that they need redemption in their lives. This is why generosity matters. In the book of 2 Corinthians, 
chapter 8, this second letter that Paul writes to a group of Christians that live in the city of Corinth, this is a letter that you and I should feel like we've got a lot in common with. Because the people who lived in Corinth were probably a lot like the people that live in Manatee County. It was a a place that was diverse in its ethnic makeup. It was diverse in its economic makeup. There was a strata of people there who were doing very well for themselves, and then there was a strata of people that were suffering terribly. And a group of, of people had come together as Christians in the city of Corinth, believers, and, and quite frankly, at times, they were succeeding greatly when it came to finances and financing the mission of God in the early days of the church, but they were, they were not doing so well when it actually came to growing up spiritually. And so Paul writes to them about a number of different things. And in this second letter that he writes to them, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 8, I I think that he shows to us uh, a little bit as to why it is that generosity matters. Let me read this passage for you. It says, "We, "'We want you to know, brothers and sisters, about the grace of God that was given to the churches of Macedonia. During a severe trial brought about by affliction, their abundant joy and their extreme poverty overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. I can testify that according to their ability and even beyond their ability of their own accord, they begged us earnestly for the privilege of sharing in the ministry to the saints and not just as we had hoped. Instead, they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us by God's will. So we urged Titus, he was a, a pastoral figure, that, they just, uh, that just as he had begun, so should also complete among you this act of grace. Now, he speaks specifically to the Corinthian church. He says, now, as you excel in everything, in faith, speech, knowledge, and in all diligence, and in your love for us, excel also in this act of grace. I'm not saying this as a command, Rather, by means of the diligence of others, I'm testing the genuineness of your love. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though He was rich, for your sake He became poor, so that by His poverty you might become rich. And as we'll see in a second, I think that that has very little to do with any finances on the earth. And in this matter, I am giving advice because it is profitable for you who began last year not only to do something, but also to want to do it. Now also finish the task so that just as there was an eager desire, there may also be a completion according to what you have. For if the eagerness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. It is not that there should be relief for others and hardship for you, but it's a question of equality. At the present time, your surplus is available for their need, so that their abundance may in turn meet your need, in order that there may be equality. As it's written, the person who had much did not have too much, and the person who had little did not have too little. In this way, Paul writes to this early church a group of people who operated quite often out of abundance. A group of people that that they seemingly, even in this first century of Christianity, where many of the Christians were out of the poorer classes and were at a social 
disadvantage. It would seem that the Corinthian believers in the church there in Corinth, that they, that they seem to be a group of people who thrived as local businessmen and women. And so he's writing to them, and he is reminding them that, that, that this is an opportunity for you to display your faith and for God to use money in your life as a tool of faithfulness rather than you getting used by your money uh, by, as a tool of the world. So uh, let me just lay out for you three different big ideas, and then at the end, three different applications that might help us to think through why generosity matters. The first may take you uh, a little off guard, but I think that it's here in the passage, and I think that it matters. And that is, number one, that my difficulties remind me to contribute to God's work. Now, the normal school of human logic is that my difficulties should remind me to save money in my nest egg for my needs. Uh, normally, that's what difficulties do in our lives. Uh, they rob us of vision for the future. They rob us of a vision for other people's needs. But in the case of the Macedonian church that Paul makes reference to, it was through their own trial, it says there in verse 2, during a severe trial brought about by affliction, their abundant joy and their extreme poverty overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. You see, the city of Macedonia and the city of Corinth were very different places. The city of Corinth had a thriving socioeconomic environment, had a place where people could do business. It was at a crossroads where lots of commerce happened, where there was a lot of influx of cash all the time. There was constantly somebody there in Corinth wanting to buy and sell and start a business and own something new. And that was not the case in Macedonia. In Macedonia, it had a depressed economy. It was a poorer class of people. They were not at a crossroads of business. It was a difficult place to live, and there was a great deal of religious persecution on top of it all. And yet, Paul says to the Corinthian people who are at great advantage, you should look to the Macedonians who are at a great disadvantage to be reminded as to what it is that you're supposed to do with your life. You see, he is basically saying any kind of persecution, poverty, or pain should remind us to be generous because there are others that are in our same circumstances. This is why the Macedonians were so apparently quick to give. It's because they, in their own pain, recognize there are other people that actually need help. But when we fortress up, when we close ourselves off, then suddenly we forget that there are other people in the world that are in pain. You have to allow your pain to drive you toward the needs of other people. If I may put it this way, you should use your pain or your pain will use you. Use your pain or your pain is going to use you. One way or another, pain is going to extract some kind of result in your life. And you can look at the persecutions and the problems of everything that's going on in your life, and you can allow it to sharpen your focus of generosity, allow it to sharpen your mind that there are other people around us that are in need of our assistance, or we can allow pain to use us to once again show how evil and problems win. This is the place where you can focus on the work of Jesus on behalf of other people rather than, than the selfishness that we so often give into. 
It's one of the reasons, uh, of, of uh, several reasons, why I believe that we as a church should continuously partner with men who are going out to plant other churches in other places in, in the country and in the world. The, because as we all know, First Baptist Church of Bradenton is a church that's 128 years old has a storied history here in the community. It has planted numerous churches right here in our county, in our region. It has contributed, contributed mightily both in financials and in resources, but then also in sending people to do mission work, both short-term and long-term around the world. And, and, and there is an argument that could be made and said, well, but we ought to keep all of that. Like, we ought to keep all the people, we ought to keep all the money, we ought to keep all the stuff, we ought to not send people anywhere else, that we ought to just keep everything so that we can just protect the home base. But there's something powerful that comes about in our lives when we are willing to follow and emulate uh, this, this example that Jesus has left for us, that we are sending kind of people, that we are a going kind of people, that, that we are a resourcing kind of people. And so we plant churches, and we help people that are doing that in places where the gospel needs a stronger witness. When, when I am willing to, to make sure that the persecution or the poverty or the pains of my life remind me to be generous, then what happens is our temporary problems begin to point us toward the eternal needs that drive the mission of the church. Every one of us has got a temporary problem. You've got a temporary problem right now. There's not a single person in this room who doesn't have a temporary problem. You got a pain in your hip, you got a pain in your heart. You got a problem at work, you got more month than you got money left. You've got a relationship that has gone sideways on you. Uh, you have got a problem. When you get done with worship today, somebody's going to go out into the parking lot and you're going to have a flat tire. Well, that's not a prophecy. I mean, that's not like, that's a maybe. Okay, hopefully, it's a, hopefully it's, that's not going to be the case for anybody. I'm going to go out and my truck is going to have a flat tire now. But we've all got a temporary problem. Those problems are not going to last throughout all of eternity. Eventually, every problem gets solved by one way or another. But these temporary problems that we encounter ought to point us not just to the fact that I hurt and I have pain and somebody ought to come and soothe, you know, the savage beast of my own heart, but it ought to point us toward the eternal needs in the lives of other people that drive the mission of the church, that the reason that we exist is to make disciples, is to help people to find forgiveness and mercy and grace in God. That, they ha that there are people outside of the boundary markers of all of our friendships and relationships inside of this church, that there's a whole community, 375,000 people in Manatee County, uh, that there's 315 million people in the United States of America, that there are 7.3 billion people on the planet, and that there is this eternal need lodged in the heart of every man, woman, boy, and, and girl. Uh, that... that our temporary needs ought to point us toward the eternal needs that people have and that drive the mission of the church. As Paul moves through this passage, there's a second point that I think would be helpful for us, and that is, as he's pointing to the Corinthian church, is that my abundance is the supply for the church's mission. Now, 
let me just say that all of us have a relative abundance. Now, is, there is one person in this room, I don't know who it is, but there's one person in this room who is the wealthiest person in this room. Now, I, again, I have no idea who you are. But on the other side, there's one person in this room who is the poorest person in this room. There, there, there's a scale here. Same is true in our city, in our county, in our nation, in our world. Uh, somewhere in this world, there is some person who is the poorest person on the planet, and there's some person in the world that's the richest person in the planet. And in the middle is all of us. And we have a relative abundance in comparison to most of the world today. If you have a clean place to, to sleep tonight, and you have clean water to drink today, you are part of the top half of humanity. We live in a relative amount of abundance. And he says here in verse 6 that he urged Titus, this pastoral figure, that just as he had begun, he should also complete among you this act of grace. Not law, not legalism. Uh, there, there's not a, a litmus test uh, that you got to give X amount of money so that you can look like this other person over here on this other row and so that your giving report and record looks like theirs. But instead, it is this idea that he's, he's wanting the church not just to think about it as, did we fill up the offering bucket? That's not the point. It is, am I moving toward a complete expression of faith? It's one of the reasons that I, I try to emphasize this as a church family uh, on almost a weekly basis. When we come to the point later on in the service when the offering plates are passed around, oftentimes I pray for you in those moments as, we are, as we're getting ready to receive the offering that I know that for some of you that giving an offering to the church is an extreme expression of faith, that you really are one of those people that you got more month than you got money left. That, that you're giving of an offering to meet the needs of people in the church and in the community and on the mission field, that it really is an, it is an expression of faith. That it's like, I, God, I believe that I, I'm going to give this, and, I, and, and I'm going to believe that you're going to care for my needs because I want to make sure that other people's needs are taken care of. God, I'm not expecting you to make me wealthy. I'm not expecting for gold dust to fly out of the ceiling and, you know, that I can collect off of the ground. I'm not expecting to go outside and that my little Toyota has turned into a Ferrari, although that would be okay and be really cool. If, if my Dodge Ram could turn into a Tesla, I'd be, I'd be fine with that. But what, what needs to be reminded of us in our lives, because we do, comparative to many people in our community and certainly around the world, we have an ease of life. And, and that ease of life ought to, ought to be a, 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 an alarm in our hearts for giving rather than hoarding. It ought to alarm us because our resources are going to be used. They're going to be used for our kingdom or they're going to be used for the kingdom. Your resources are going to get used for one kingdom or another. They're going to, you're going to draw a circle around where you stand and those resources are either going to be used for your kingdom or they're going to be used for the kingdom. 
They're either going to be used on you or someone else. And that's why he goes on to say there in verse 7, as you excel in everything, faith, speech, knowledge, diligence, love for us, excel also in this act of grace. It is a warning that possessing so much advantage can lull us into an apathetic state. That, well, everything must be fine because look at how easy my life is. Everything must be okay because I got another paycheck. God must be really happy with me. I mean, look at who I am. But the writer in the Old Testament in the book of Ecclesiastes says, the one who loves wealth is never satisfied with wealth, and whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. It is all futile. As a church family, just like in your family, there's this thing that we use Sometimes family use it really, really effectively. At other times, it's a very loose kind of ideas, set of principles, and that is a budget. And for us as a church, the church budget is a declaration of our priorities. It is, it is us declaring what is most important. And so we make this decision that something like the Florida Baptist Children's Home and the One More Child, it, it's going to be a priority for us that we're going to give to it on a regular basis, that we're going to invest in the care of children, that we're going to have mission partners like Chris Phillips and Journey Point Church in Denver, Colorado, that we're going to have a partner like Izzat, who is uh, an Egyptian refugee in the country of Jordan working with a Baptist church in order to minister to Iraqi refugees. We're, We're going to declare these priorities, that this is what's important, is that we reach out beyond ourselves rather than just hoard everything to ourselves, because our abundance is a supply. And, and so it doesn't just become an individual thing, your abundance, and I'm going to walk out and I'm going to rummage through your purse or through your wallet and figure out what it is that you have and wave it in your face and ask you why you haven't been more generous. I, what I want to say is that us collectively as a church family, we have a huge amount of abundance. I, I mean, it, it's overwhelming. I know that you don't always think about maybe our church in this kind of way. Uh, Jerry was nice enough, way too kind about who I know and who I've contacted with, but all of you know that prior to me coming here as the pastor that I worked at a very large resource organization, and part of that work that I did was in research. And so it was my job to understand the religious landscape of the United States of America and the globe as a whole. And I can tell you that the size of our church and the size of our budget puts us in the top 10% of churches in the United States of America. There are about 300,000 Protestant churches in America, and we're in the top 10 percentile in size and in budget. We have abundance. We have got so much more than so many others do. And we should, we should leverage it for the good of the mission that God has set us on. So here's the thing. Care is costly, but it's always worthwhile because redemption is involved. And care is costly. It is costly uh, to care for children. It is costly to send money to church plants. It is costly to pay the way for kids to go to camp and uh, for teenagers to be on discipleship weekends. It is costly to buy Bible study materials and to send Bibles to different places. It is, there is all sorts of costs involved with the care of ongoing ministries, but we do so because the redemption of a human soul is involved. 
That's why we don't give in to just a consumer mentality of how can we be religiously entertained when we get together, because if that was the case, I would show you videos of preachers that were way better than me. And I would show you videos of the latest Tim Tebow YouTube viral sensation video, and you can look at him and, and his perfect Adonis pecs. But instead, we... But instead, we as a church family have decided that we don't care about how costly ministry care is, that we want to pay that cost because redemption of other people is involved. And there's third point that, I, I, that really underpins everything, and that is our Lord has called us to a radical generosity. Now, finding this verse in the Bible where Jesus said, thou shalt be radically generous. Well, that's in Second Hesitations, chapter 3, verse 12. <laughs> it, it's not. Jesus never said that. Instead, what we see here in verse 9 for you know, through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though He was rich, for your sake He became poor, so that by His poverty you might become rich. The incarnation of Jesus was God's radical plan for our radical need. There is this place in our hearts where we think, well, maybe my need is actually not that bad. Maybe whatever my need is, I can fix it. I can figure it out. I, I can, I can uh, do enough good things in life to where I'll feel better about myself. I can make up for all of the wrongs that I've committed against other people to where they'll forgive me. Uh, I can be a better person at work, I can better be a better teammate, I can be nicer to my neighbor's dog, I can return the shovel that I borrowed from uh, the guy down the block three years ago, I, I, can, I, can be, I can be better. And we lose sight of just how radical our need really is. We think that it is manageable to the point that we can do something about it ourselves. As Paul is writing to the Corinthian church, he actually spans what we uh, scope out as two different chapters about the blessing of being generous. He spends all of chapter 8 and all of chapter 9 reminding the Corinthian church as to why generosity matters and what it does in their heart. But I do want you to see, if you got your Bible still open, turn to that very last verse of chapter 9. As he has encourage them about what God will do in their lives, of how grace will overflow uh, for them as how they can supply the ministry needs that other people have. He gets to the very end of this section of talking about generosity, and he doesn't say, and thanks for giving. Instead, there in chapter 9, verse 15, he says, and thanks be to God for His indescribable gift. You see, Christ's poverty is not an abstract idea. It was the antidotes to sin's venomous sting. You and I are poisoned. Our hearts are exceedingly wicked. 
We are broken beyond repair. Left to our own devices, we are selfish, self-centered, narcissistic, horrible, terrible people. If you do not believe me, then I want you to volunteer for the nursery next weekend, okay? (laughs) That is a bunch of selfish little human beings over there. If you don't give them their little fish crackers, they're going to be mad because that's who we are by nature. We break relationships. We hurt people. We steal. We hate. We hold bitterness. We're angry. We're jealous. We're greedy. We're lustful creatures. And Christ's poverty becomes the antidote to this venomous sting that sin makes in our lives. And the revolutionary life of Jesus should never be sterilized down to a manageable version that it's easy for us to imitate. Oh, I'm going to throw a few dollars in the plate. I'm going to give another check. I'm going to write something out of the abundance of my life. I'm going to give something even though it hurts just a little bit. And man, do I look like Jesus. But instead, this is just the beginning of grace. This is just the beginning of the life of, of, of faith. Instead, this regular, constant, generous giving that we do supplies the need for discipling and supplying the, the nonstop ministry needs that are in people's lives because I want to somehow participate and fellowship in the sufferings of Jesus that as he became poor, other people became rich in grace. Giving focuses your life on God's redemption and mission. It focuses your life on what God is doing. It doesn't mean that you have to empty your bank account and live as a pauper on the street. It doesn't mean that you give up everything. It means that as God presses in on your heart that you show generosity to the person who's in need. And that might mean becoming a foster care parent. That might mean giving your life to mission. It might mean for some of you that are retired that you stop spending all of your time running around the country and seeing pretty things and instead spend the next two years on the mission field with the International Mission Board in a place where the gospel's not yet known. It might mean as a young family or as a young adult that instead of planning out how you can be financially successful and better than everybody else in your family, that you make the decision that you want to go to a people group that God is desperate to reach and that you're willing to give up the next few years of your life to go on mission to them. Or it could mean, I don't know, that there is somebody in this room that needs to write a big, gigantic, fat check for something. I don't know. But what I do know is that Christ gave us this example of radical generosity. And meanwhile, we sit with the little toys of our lives tight-fisted around them saying, I dare you to take something away from me. And in doing so, we lose the vision as to who Jesus actually is and what He actually came to do for us. See, this is where that big blackboard of equations comes back around for me. This is finally where I figure out the X factor. See, Jesus plus anything equals nothing. But Jesus plus nothing equals everything. I don't need to add 
anything to Jesus. I don't need to add my wealth. I don't need to add my skill set. I don't need to add my own morality. I don't need to add my own abilities. I add nothing to what Jesus does in our lives. And so let me just say to you that if you find yourself here today without Jesus, that you don't have to add anything to what he's done, that he just simply wants to add grace, forgiveness, mercy, and salvation into your life. And that can happen today. For those of us that are believers, let me just say these three quick things to you. As a church, it means that we have to move from being a catering organization to an equipping organization. That we're not going to focus on catering to needs. We're going to focus on equipping people to be missionaries in the world, locally, nationally, globally. We're going to equip people to be disciples, equip people to be leaders. That, that catering is not the business of the church. Equipping for the mission of God is. That as a believer, give yourself and your money will follow. Look, I, let me just tell you, I have, I, I, on a regular basis, I have no access to your giving records. I don't, I don't want access to your giving records. There's like two people in our church who have access to that part of the database who log all that stuff in. I, I'm not interested in the amount of money that you give to the church. I'm interested in the amount of your life that you make accessible to Jesus. That's what matters. Give yourself to Jesus, money, service, time, perspective, skills, assignments, all of that will follow. And then as a giving believer, focus on gospel causes, and your comfort will cease to matter. One of the, the great saints of the modern era was a little lady. She was not even five feet tall. Her name was Lottie Moon. Every year around Christmas time, we do an international mission offering. The entire Southern Baptist Convention uh, does this to benefit international missions. And it's named after Lottie because she gave her life as a missionary in China. Eventually, she died uh, from starvation because she kept giving away all of her food. She very regularly gave away her mattresses and would sleep on the wood slats of the little hut that she lived in. Uh, there's a, another great missionary lady by the name of Annie, Annie Armstrong, that we name our North American mission offering after, that we give to. Uh, there are other missionaries, uh, Hudson Taylor, uh, other missionaries like George Mueller, that these are people who are willing to give so much of themselves that their comfort no longer mattered. And so if you find yourself in a position right now where the thing that matters the most is your comfort, then you're missing the point of Jesus. And it's not that Jesus wants you to be miserable. It's that Jesus wants you to be filled with His grace rather than you trying to fill up yourself with whatever it is that you can figure out of the world. It's not that Jesus is going to take everything away from you. Jesus is going to give everything to you. And so the question is, what is it that you want? Do you want the toys of this world and the fitfulness that they bring? Or do you want the grace of heaven and the eternal answer that it always holds? And today, you get to choose. Let me pray for you.